All right, guys, welcome back to the Buck Fever podcast. As always, you're here with Noah and Jake, and today we have another very special guest. So turkey season is in full swing, and we've been talking a lot about turkey hunting with various guests coming on, but today's guest has a bit of a more unique connection to turkey hunting and and the turkey hunting industry, specifically in the turkey call carving industry which is one that up until recently I, I admittedly didn't really know too much about but uh, we are we are speaking today with um, I mean some would maybe say like the king of uh, turkey call carving here we have Dave Constantine with us Dave how are you doing tonight really good guys um, thanks for having me on yeah we really appreciate you being here and and uh this is going to be a super fun conversation here for us because we kind of got connected through a mutual friend. Um, and as soon as I had heard about your work, I, I knew that we had to check it out and, and try and reach out to see if you'd come on the, on the podcast. And I mean, immediately from going on your Facebook page and everything, it, it my, my mind was blown. You've got some really, really, really impressive work going. Thank you. So I, I kind of want to give a little bit of an introduction on on our part here, and I know that you know what you do is a passion, and so it's it's certainly not all about the accolades or the awards, but uh, to not mention some of them, I think would be doing you a great disservice. So I, I kind of want to give our listeners a little bit of a feel for. Um, what what some of your work has amounted to over the years. So Dave was inducted into the Grand National Call-Making Hall of Fame. He was an 11-time Earl Mickle Award winner, which is given annually to the top call-maker at the Grand National event. And if I'm not mistaking, that was an unprecedented 11 times. I don't think anybody's even come close. And it sounds That's like, <laughs> and it sounds like <laughs> before that, uh, before the Earl Mickle was even a thing, you were a three-time Call Maker of the Year award winner. And um, as far as I'm aware, there's probably several hundred other awards that you've amassed over the years that um, you know are certainly important. But uh, it sounds like there might be a few too many to fully list here. Um, so, I mean, obviously, a, a huge congratulations on on all of those awards. I'm sure it's been uh, a huge honor over the years. It really has, you know. Um, and, I mean, I'll tell you guys, early on, I kind of taught myself and started out with, um, it actually kind of started with um, a friend of mine way back in the day. I think there was three turkey zones in wisconsin and he said dave we should put in for a turkey tag and i don't if i remember right there was 18 tags available (laughs) and uh in zone three and we drew two of them and so at that point in time i had this wild hair that i should make my own call and try to kill a turkey with it and that's kind of how it all started. Wow. I yeah, mean, that's 
That's really something. Where, where do you go about making your own call? I mean, how do you even start with that, with this being a kind of a new thing in, back in the day? Well, I had really no clue, and um, so I thought, well, I don't know why I picked a box call, but I did. I mean, I think and I thought that would be the easiest. I, I mean, as time went on, I realized those are probably the hardest to master <laughs> and to uh, and this call, I'll be honest with you, it sounded like crap. It was terrible. But I actually had a, a, a turkey, a gobbler, answered me um, one morning on this particular hunt very early on, like I said, in the Wisconsin uh, history of Wisconsin's wild turkey um, reintroduction and subsequently the seasons. And um, I, I was so amazed that this bird actually even – answered my call uh, that I, it, I think at that very moment I was just hooked on the on the whole idea of making calls and turkey hunting etc and I've been doing it ever since but it, it was like I said I'll repeat it was a terrible call I mean god bless that gobbler <laughs> so dave where are you from originally? You don't have to give us like your home address or anything, but uh, just a general area. In Durand, Wisconsin, I live about ten miles from there now. I've actually been um, in the area all my life. I was uh, in the seventies. I lived in Hawaii for a period of time. I was a commercial fisherman there, and then moved back home shortly after. I was uh, in Hawaii like three years and then moved back here, been here since. So legend has it, even though you grew up in western Wisconsin, you saw your first wild turkey when you were in Hawaii. Is that correct? True. That is true. Uh, we used to, um, I, I, I had a friend over there, a Japanese fellow, and he was, into hunting and we used to hunt a lot of uh spanish goats and some of the hawaiian um the mufon sheep and whatnot that it, uh, were inhabited um the mountains of uh, the big island of mauna kea up in that area and uh <clears throat> in the course of being introduced to those kind of uh, animals for hunting i i would notice in the fringes of the jungles up there there was turkeys and i inquired about them and he said oh yeah at the time they didn't even have a season um you could buy i believe you could just buy a tag and go turkey hunting and that was literally the first my first taste of turkey hunting i i killed several and they're real grand subspecies but i killed several uh hawaiian real grand birds at the time when i lived there yes that's pretty sweet yeah i mean that's that's crazy to us because we've grown up now in a time when turkeys are just absolutely abundant in wisconsin so to think that you wouldn't really see any and then you go to hawaii of all places and that's where they're roaming around that, that's crazy to us one of the interesting things about the hawaiian turkey is um in I, a lot of times people don't even think about it. You know, they don't really have seasons in the Hawaiian Islands. I mean, it's a, it's a tropical 
um, area, and so you don't have have spring, summer, fall, winter. Right. So, what triggers those Hawaiian birds is uh, is rain. It seemed like whenever there would be light rains, then they would do the same thing our birds do here in the spring. It was, you know, and so coming off of that as a first time experience for wild turkeys, um, I kind of hunted them a little bit strange when I first got back to the States and went, actually we couldn't even hunt them when I first got back because there were no seasons except in, in the far South. So uh, it was kind of interesting that these birds reacted differently to the weather. Of course, they had, like I said, they had no spring season. So they breed all year round there, depending on the weather. Yeah, I never really would have thought about that. Makes sense, though. Right? Yeah, it does. Huh. Right. So what has your impression been then over the years as there's been more and more and more turkeys and we've developed all the zones and the seasons and everything? What has that been like to kind of watch all of that unfold? You know, I think uh, Wisconsin has done a really good job with the structure of the seasons. Um, um, the the one that, Having hunted turkeys for so many years, um, one thing I've noticed, and I think that one of the things that would make a person a better turkey hunter is to understand the dynamics of the flock or of the wild turkeys throughout the year. And uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that our birds here actually start breeding in March, in late March. And some years, if we have mild springs, not like this one, which was horrible, <laughs> but... Well, when we have mild springs, there's a probably half or 50% of the breeding has already taken place in, in late March. And so once you understand that, you need to know then how does that each time, kind of period of time transition from breeding to um, hens nesting or laying and then the hatch, etc. And it'll just make anybody a better turkey hunter if they can understand that so what i'm saying is there are times when the very first two periods in wisconsin um if you put a hen decoy out for example you're gonna risk not having success and the re there's a reason for that and when I've given seminars, I say, why would that be? And rarely does anyone answer, have an answer, but it's because the hens have been together all winter. And they know each individual in a given area in that flock or group or different or actually small flocks, big flocks. They know each other so well when they see a strange hen which is your decoy immediately it's not that they think it's fake they just don't want anything to do with that bird huh so to be successful the first part of the season you're way better off just using a jake decoy no hens 
and that's what I'm saying. I'm alluding to the understanding the dynamics of the flock and how that progresses throughout the spring will really help you become successful. I mean, once I've, once I've learned a lot of this stuff, I mean, it has really, really increased um, the success of turkey hunting as a hunter, and it would help anyone to know that stuff. I maybe have gotten off the track a little bit here, but I, I do like talking about that, so. Yeah, no, that's that's tons of good stuff there because that's actually something we've been talking about recently quite a bit is, you know, different yeah. hunting tactics, different yeah. calling tactics, yeah. decoy setups, things like that. But what you're saying, that really makes a ton of sense and it's probably not, um, you know, dissimilar to deer hunting in that way where, you know, the different time periods throughout the year deer had have different needs and wants and all that stuff and so if you can understand really what the deer is thinking or what the turkey is thinking or whatever it makes it a whole lot easier to hunt that bird and the reason guys i even mentioned that i was kind of forced into really learning this stuff because um as a i'm not just a call maker but i'm also a a uh, wood carver and I've probably carved almost all of the masters in other words the original wooden decoy that goes to the manufacturer to have be made then for the market so I've done like all of Dakota's decoys all of uh, Flambeau's um, um, Lucky Duck um, and not just their turkeys, but also their waterfowl, ducks, and geese, all the these new, these real ultra-realistic decoys. So it forced me to kind of do studies with these decoys, and I learned that there are certain decoy presentations for wild turkeys that are very successful, and it's pretty simple, really. So the first two periods of the season, you want to only use a Jake decoy. All right. So as you as you get into third and fourth period, that's when you want to use a hen and Jake setup. You can use a breeder setup, or you can just have a hen and a Jake, or two hens and a Jake. And so that third and fourth period is that's the right in the middle of the season. Then you get into fifth and sixth period, and then it's a single hen only scenario. If you adhere to those rules your success turkey hunting will really increase. So it's good stuff to know. So you talk about the seasons now, but when this is kind of a little backtracking, but when you first started and they first opened up uh, turkey hunting in Wisconsin, what were the seasons like back then? Was it, you said there's only 18 tags. So did you just get to hunt for the full six weeks or was it like three or how did that work out? uh, It was, um, I'm trying to remember so I here's one thing I do remember. Um, was that you, Noah? No, that, that was Jake. Jake, Jake. So if I remember right, what what then was first period is now second period. Okay. So they've added one in front of that since then. But I remember it was no. I think it was like uh, a week. The same kind of structure. It just there just wasn't a lot of zones opened yet and there wasn't a lot of uh, 
I think it was uh, only five time periods. Okay, okay. To answer your question, yeah. Yeah, so I guess I'll go back maybe even a little bit further here, and I, I want to come back to all this stuff because it's, it's a lot of good stuff, but I, I don't want to just uh, brush over your time in Hawaii because it's kind of a, a cool um, you know element to the, the your story. So um, you, you mentioned that you were a commercial fisherman in Hawaii? Was yes, and when I say that, that isn't any big flamboyant deal. I had a Japanese friend who I mentioned I hunted with and got to know there, and he had a 18-foot V-bottom Alumacraft boat, and we went every day out in the Pacific Ocean, <laughs> and we would fish for tuna to sell on the fish market, huh. the local fish market. So was it? And there were days. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. There were days when the the boat would be in the bottom of a swell, and the and the swell top would be thirty feet above you. No way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, but we caught a lot of fish. We did pretty well. We because you know in in Hawaii there's fresh fish markets um, everywhere, and so. You, you just catch fish and then you go sell them and they pay you by the pound. But yeah, that's what I did there. Wow. Were you, were you catching pretty big tuna or just like medium we're size? Catch, uh, we're, we were not targeting like yellow fins, the okay. real big ones. We were targeting uh, uh, tuna they call um, um, skipjack or aku tuna which run about anywhere from eight to 20 pounds and they're they're um uh, readily sought after in the islands as a, as a food source and the, of course the hawaiians eat a lot of fish it's raw uh sashimis all that kind of stuff yeah and that's what we were targeting most of the time gotcha yeah i didn't know if it was like the shows you see where they're catching you know a couple hundred pounders not like wicked tuna <laughs> no, not like blue fins or yellow fins not that kind of fishing no sir gotcha so it sounds like you had you know probably some days you had some of the most beautiful views in the whole world and then other days it was pretty rough out there oh. huh yeah <laughs> there's a lot of stories yes sir wow yeah, so I, then you mentioned a little bit about kind of how you got into, um, you know, call making, whatever. So as you kind of got going then, did it just kind of start as a hobby and then kind of work up from there? I actually, I was making, like I mentioned, I initially just wanted to make a turkey call and, and go hunt with it. And... Um, you know, kind of, I think, started out pretty normal where, you know, you have friends and family and they go, oh, gosh, that'd be cool. Make me one of those. And you do that. And I I think where it kind of really took off is on the state level at every year at the state convention, they started a custom call makers competition. Now, this was not the fancy ones like you've seen some of my decorative stuff I'll call it this was a plain Jane working call and they it was just called the hunting division and I entered um, a box call and over the years I won that 
that um, hunting division five times on the state level. And then I had a couple of outdoor writers who got wind of that and wrote some articles back in that time period about my box calls, the the original, some of them are quite famous at this point, the beer belly box, the schooner box, the skinny bitch, the she nasty. I mean, all of my box calls are all uh, my original designs. They're not Neil cost type box calls, like probably 95% of the called box call makers out there is what they're, they're making a Neil cost style box. So mine are, all original designs. And I think these um, magazine articles that these writers did at the time kind of gave things a real kick in the rear end because, I mean, I can remember making box calls for months on end just to keep up. Jeez. And But those were all hunting calls, guys. They weren't uh, the 11-time Grand National artistic decorative winners like you had talked about earlier. Right, right, because I, I think for anybody who hasn't seen your work, it maybe is was a little bit confusing there, because you do both. You have, like, the actual Ooh. calls that you can take hunting, and then you have calls that you would never, ever in a million years ever take hunting because they're so elaborate, you know, so unique, it could just never spend a second out in the woods. Um, and well, it, you said it perfectly, yeah. that's I do I do hunting calls that people can hunt with. And then I do, I call them collector grade decorative calls that are very elaborate. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen a couple scrolling through Facebook and, and whatever, just, you know, like a flock of turkeys on top of a call and then there's antlers incorporated. I mean, they've just done some really, really crazy work. Well, Thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, I mean, crazy um, in a good way. <laughs> yes, I, I, yeah, and that's where um, things really got popular, at least with me, was um, graduating into some of these very artistic endeavors, I would call them, but also a functional um, turkey call. And if people... Uh, check out my uh, some of my social platforms. They'll definitely see some of the stuff. I mean, and when you say fancy, it is really fancy stuff. Yes. So going back a little bit on your uh, your first box call, you said that uh, it didn't sound the best. I mean, how many times did it? How many calls did you have to make or adjustments before you found the right one? Or were you and a couple guys like trying to figure it out and? <laughs> Uh, prototypes or how did that all go down before you found the one where you're like, you know, this one, this one sounds pretty good. um, I would say until I was satisfied with experimentation, trial and error, et cetera, et cetera. Like anybody does when they try to do something uh, totally original. I, I would say it took probably six, eight years before I had a, my first design box call that I thought was was capable of killing a bird regular basis wow that that's impressive to stick with it that long and persevere till you find something that's that's worth uh worth your wild 
but it's so challenging, you know, I was always, I never really lost interest. So I just kept plugging away. And like I mentioned a little bit ago, now I have, um, as far as just hunting calls, guys, I, um, let's see, I've got one, two, three, I think there's four or five that are very, very popular. I mean, they are really, really good hunting calls. Wow. So as you were kind of going along then, you know, kind of finding your way, did you have any any mentors or any idols, people that were already in the space that kind of helped you out or, or people that you looked up to? You know, it. I've been asked that before, and this you have to realize, you know, back in, I'm going to say in the mid the late 80s, and uh, maybe you guys know this, but there was not a lot of turkey hunters. I mean, it was a really new thing to the state. Uh, we were in the process of growing the, the turkey populations, and like we talked about a little bit ago about structuring the seasons, etc. And so, it, you know, I didn't really know a lot so the answer was no until when I started competing on a national basis, I met a gentleman. I, I don't know if you, have you guys ever heard of Neil Cost? No, it's not I ringing a bell. So, no. He's the most famous box call maker on the planet, alive or dead. And if you check into it, he was considered the, the best, hunting box call maker ever lived. Now he's passed away um, a few years back, but I had the pleasure of meeting him and becoming friends with him. And he said to me one day, he said, Dave, I want to challenge you to make a one-sided box call without any tapers on the side, straight, straight walls. And so that was one day in Nashville, Tennessee at the National Convention over a, um, a, a glass of bourbon, the two of us. And I said, Neil, I'll, I'll bring my results next year. I brought, and I brought them back and I set this box call down in front of him and he played it and he said, oh my God. He said, you did it. And so as far as anybody that's well-known, I guess that'd be the guy to know. And he's, I mean, that's about the only guy knew at the time. So, Yeah, that's really cool. So then do you want to cover a little bit about the convention? Because I know that's where a lot of the awards had come from, as we mentioned before, but um, we haven't really yeah. described it too much. Well, yeah. I, I'm trying to think, uh, I think it's was 30, and I, I, I never really know the numbers, and I always hate when I'm talking um, either to a, on an interview or a, a writer or something, but 30-some years they've hosted the um, Grand National uh, Wild Turkey Annual Convention. Um, and what that is, is a conglomeration of a giant sports show and then also various competitions that involve the wild turkey, um, all the way from flat art up to the custom call competition. They have 
a lot of going on. It's worth checking out. It's it's really a nice venue. And we're talking a lot of people, like 40,000 people attend this thing every year. So it's big. Um, now, in conjunction with that, they host the Grand National Custom Call Competition. And that's what I have been competing in up until uh, two years ago, which was kind of uh, my, uh, I just, not officially, but I just kind of decided that I will back off of that competition, maybe retire from the turkey side of things there, which I have done. And um, you guys can, I mean, we can talk about at some time why, but anyway, that's that's kind of the story of the convention. So when you're making these kind of calls, I mean, each when you make your, your fancier ones, I'm sure those all take different amount of times for what you're making. But so say if you're going to sit down and make a, an actual hunting one, what's the, what's the time length on that you think start to finish for one call? It's a great question. I'm so I don't do any machining, um, uh, like CNC work. Everything I make, and I pride myself because all of my calls are made custom, and they're all made by hand with hand tools. And so, uh, like, uh, if I'm sitting down to make like a she nasty box call for a customer, I'm probably going to be looking at uh, three or four days from start to finish. Wow. That's just for one call. And, um, pardon? That's just for one call. Yes. Wow. I mean, uh, tooling and everything. I mean, they're they're all handmade, you know. And people have said, "Well, one hundred and fifty dollars for a box call." I don't think they realize, you know, there's a lot of time in it. Plus, it's a very very quality call, you know. And, and I I admit that sounds like a lot of money for when you can go to a sports shop you know shields or farm and fleet and you can buy a box call for 30 30 dollars yeah there's a big difference right but i mean the the time and effort you put into yours is a lot more uh, a lot more than your 30 dollar one from shields and probably sounds a lot better yeah. too yeah absolutely yes so what about some That's of the true. Now go ahead the decorative calls, that's a whole different deal. It depends on each individual piece. I mean, I've had some that were, I worked on for, three, I had 300 hours in, and I've had some I've had three months in. Holy, Holy cow. cow. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly what I was going to ask, because those are okay. certainly certainly going to be more than, three or four days or something like that. But yeah, holy cow. Yeah. It really does show though. I mean, when you look at some of these pieces, it's, it's unbelievable. You can tell that a great deal of time was taken to, to make these things. You couldn't just turn that out and in a week or something. You know, I, I really enjoy doing them. I plan them out. I have a vision. Usually I want, I let, I try to have all of my pieces have a theme, and I don't know if you guys noticed that, but you mentioned like a flock of turkeys on the top of the call. I think you're talking about, uh, it was called Snowbirds, and it was three gobbler, Miriam's gobblers in the snow, walking down 
you know, like a snow drift, and then below them was a hen. Um, I mean, I I probably had, oh my gosh, uh, probably a solid month on that call. Yeah. And I should mention the convention every year hosts a grand national celebrity auction in that where people come from all over to buy these things. I mean, it's a kind of a fancy Sotheby-style uh, auction. And most of my pieces are haven't been in the auction because they're in the, in the National Wild Turkey Federation's Winchester Museum. So the deal is if you win this, you know, your piece automatically goes in the museum. But I have had a few pieces that ended up on the auction. And so I've gotten to kind of see both sides of that as I've, you know, throughout the years. That's that's pretty sweet. So, so when you're making these uh, these fancier calls, like where does the vision come from on how to how to create what you're doing, or do you think of this all in your head? Do you see pictures? Do you see it when you're out hunting and you think, oh, that'd be cool to put on a call, or how does that all go down? some of it comes from hunting, but a lot of it is just, um, I, you know, it's, I try to pick a theme, you know, just something that will capture the essence of wild turkeys. Doesn't necessarily have to be the hunting side, but just wild turkeys in general. And so once I get that theme, um, I mean, I'll, I'll admit, truly am blessed to kind of have that all already figured out in my head not how i'm going to do it but how it's going to look in the end okay that that's pretty sweet that you can just kind of brainstorm that up and make it look like you do yeah yeah so what uh what kind of wood do you like to use then or do you use different materials all the time oh excellent question all right so when it comes to a hunting call, there are certain woods that are very, very good. For example, uh, I'm, uh, I'm basically a box call maker. So I think you guys realize that from the conversation here. So I'll talk about box call. And indigenous woods, meaning that they're from the upper Midwest that we're all familiar with, but there's some that are really, really, really good. One is butternut with a cherry lid, um, butternut with a cedar lid. And so you're looking at two components there. You got the box and then the lid. And then black walnut and cedar are great combinations. Yellow poplar with cherry is a great combination. I, I'm not a, I don't know a lot about exotic woods, but like some of my friends who make yelpers and turn barrel yelpers and, and they, those guys really know these exotics, but the exotics generally are not good for box calls. So some of the wood that grows around trees that grow around Wisconsin, Minnesota, the upper Midwest are all very, very good uh, for making box calls. Now there's some exceptions like oak. 
uh, red oak, white oak, uh, not that good. And, and, to, and so throughout the years, you kind of experiment and you find the things that work really, really well and you stick to it. Now, when it comes to the, to the decorative stuff, all kinds of components. I mean, from natural deer antler, fossilized stuff, uh, ivory, um, and then the woods can run the gamut. It depends on what kind of effects you want. If you're just doing natural wood with no painting, things like some of the exotic walnuts and butternut and some of those things are really, really nice. So there's a very, very wide variety when it comes to the decorative side. So the wood that you're using, it's it's good because it's both easy to carve and it makes the call sound good? Okay, um... No, not really. Okay. Uh, more, more, not so much easy to carve, but it makes the call sound good. So you had it half right. So when it comes to hunting calls, it's all about the sound. It's all about the combination of woods that make that really sound good. Gotcha. So then on the decorative pieces, if somebody was to you know use those or or at least you know test it out or something. Are those going to sound like what you would say is a good quality call to have in the hunting woods? <laughs> Therein lies the whole trick. They have to. <laughs> One of the criteria is that it has to be able to call a turkey. It has to sound good. And I say therein lies the trick because that is very hard to pull off with these real fancy pieces like I do. can imagine. Yeah, so you touched on it a little bit earlier than two, um, but it sounds like you you don't only carve turkey calls. Is that correct? Say that again. You touched on it a little bit earlier, but it sounds like you don't exclusively carve turkey calls. You carve other things as well. Gosh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I would say half of my my um, business, for lack of a better phrase, over the last 40 years has been call, turkey calls and other calls. I make water, I make duck calls, goose calls, um, all kinds of turkey calls, um, deer calls. But I would say that'd be 50%. The other 50% is doing original wood carvings and wood carvings and sculpture work um i I call it very high-end art pieces gotcha so do you want to tell us a little bit about some of the more like elaborate stuff you've done or some of those decorative uh decorative pieces whether they're calls or or just more sculptures well they all you know they fall into a Guys, they fall into a whole different area for the customer. On the customer side for those, it's generally um, uh, very, I would call them serious collectors that are collecting specifically um, high-end turkey calls or duck calls or whatever it is. And also uh, the type of collector that collects high-end artwork. 
So my background has been as an artist uh, ever since high school. And um, so I've always been considered myself an artist, specifically uh, sculpture, sculptor, designer, and wood carver. Uh, some of those pieces, I mean, we're, we're talking, well, I've had turkey calls, decoratives that have sold in the $10,000 range. Holy cow. Uh, if that gives you kind of a little idea, yes. Yeah, that's an idea on how much time and effort it must have taken to put that together. Right, exactly. And I mean, that, um, there are pieces that are that are in the museum that never did get sold that I'm sure maybe were even more valuable than that. I don't know, but I'm guessing. Wow. So speaking of some of those that you've made, is there a couple that you're just, that you're most proud of or have a special place in your heart that you are like, wow, this one, this one's way above all the other ones. Uh, probably there's two or three that come to mind. Uh, one of them, um, is a box called completely carved out of elephant ivory, the entire thing. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's quite a piece. It really is. Uh, and it was, his theme was uh, a trout stream in the spring where uh, a possibly a roost tree right there on the bank of the... So the whole thing is rising trout with turkey feathers um, floating down the trout stream. Uh, no turkeys, just feathers and trout. And it's really quite a beautiful piece. That one comes to mind. Um, I did one several years ago that was the theme was from the Old Testament um, and on uh, in the Old Testament the, the seven days of creation on the fifth day God created all the birds of the land and of the sky so I did this call called and the title was and on the fifth day and it was the hand of God. I carved it out of holly from the painting in the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel that um, Michelangelo did where he's touching the finger of Adam. It was called the creation of Adam. So instead of Adam, though, I had the carved hand and a gobbler coming off of that. And it's called And on the Fifth Day. And it's quite a... It, Quite a probably reaction wise over the years that call probably got the most reaction of the, all of them was that particular one. Yeah, it sounds unbelievable. I, I don't think I've ever seen it. I don't think I've seen that one on your social media or anything. But I'm gonna have to just keep scrolling until I can find it because that sounds unbelievable. You'll find it. Yeah, you'll find it. It's pretty recognizable, but those two come to mind right away. Uh, ironically, I'm doing, or more, uh, I'll say interestingly, I'm doing a takeoff of that call right now that is going to be just an art piece called And on the Fifth Day. 
and it's larger um, and it's going to be um, that exact same theme but not a call just an art piece so you you put all this time and effort into these uh, very elaborate ones and uh, I don't know if there's been some along the line where they don't go as planned and uh, so what kind of happens if you mess up or you're you get to a point and you don't like it do you start over or do you just try to incorporate something else into it <laughs> you know everybody asks me that um, I've never had a piece where I've said that's really really sucks bad and I've started over but I've had pieces where I wasn't happy with things like uh, the composition you know like the lines and my buddy Steve sitting next to me who also is a very accomplished artist and call maker here from Missouri Steve Luma but anyway he's shaking his head I've, I've had pieces where I didn't like the flow of the piece or how it was would be viewed and so the negative versus the positive space that kind of stuff and so I've kind of had to rework those things but I've never really had one I've just thrown into the fireplace okay wow so you mentioned earlier how there's a certain competitions that you're kind of no longer really entering anymore. You said somewhat of a, a unofficial retirement. Um, you want to touch on why yeah. that is? Sure. You bet. Uh, it's kind of a two part. Uh, first of all, I don't, don't need the competition anymore and I don't need this to put it down at all I love it I love the competition and competing but I don't need it as far as the accolades thing and also I noticed the over last um, I'm gonna say half a dozen years that some of the some of the people that were going to compete didn't because I was there uh, which sounds really weird, but it was one of them deals, well, I, I'll never beat Dave, so I'm not even going to try. And so in order, I kind of would like to see the whole thing keep growing. And so I decided um, a year ago that I was not going to compete in the turkey side of the competition anymore. Well, I mean, that sounds... And I'm Go ahead. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Yeah, no, it sounds like a super selfless thing to do to, you know, really benefit anybody who might be new or, or who wants to keep competing and, you know, to really allow for the competition to continue to grow and, and to flourish and all that. And, you know, to kind of put your own, um, you know, like you said, to put your own accolades aside and, and kind of you know, pave the way for others and, and give them an opportunity. I mean, that sounds, that sounds like a really selfless thing to do that I think is very admirable. And along with that, I'm starting to do some week long workshops here at my studio and shop. And they're really focused on, on decorative carving and, and, and also focused designed for call makers so that's we had the first one last year it was just a, a blast everybody that attended, i think i had um, nine 
students from seven states. Wow. So I was going to ask that too, if somebody wanted to get into carving like this, but they don't have a ton of experience, or maybe they're a student where, you know, they're in art or they're in sculpting things and carving things and they're kind of, you know, on their way up, maybe what would be the best way for them to, um, you know, kind of further their career or, or get into a little bit? Would it be your workshop? Definitely. I mean, it's all hands on and, there's so many things that um, that I know from doing this over the years. And then also some of the attendees are so established and savvy that, yeah, it's kind of priceless, really. Wow. Yeah, so, I mean, yes. I guess if, if anybody's, anybody's into that, um, into that uh, you know, you definitely want to, check that out for sure how many people will you um like have at at any given time how can somebody get into your program um yeah i i have right now i have the capability of doing like nine students and not including myself so 10 people i'm working on maybe um rearranging my um shop a little bit where i maybe could add another three or four to that. So, I mean, at the most, it would maybe be a dozen. But um, it's, like I said, it's all hands-on. And they can, you know, if people follow me on Facebook, I have my regular Facebook page, which is my name, and then I have Constantine Productions, which I try to put most stuff on both of those so they'd be able to find out when that's occurring. The one coming up this year is going to be in August again. Uh, somewhere around uh, the third or the middle of August, somewhere uh, like last year. And um, you might find this a little strange. I don't charge a dime wow. to do this. Whew. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds like a gold mine for anybody who's trying to get a little bit of extra expertise and get some some help and some advice on how to get a little bit better at, at this stuff. I mean, why wouldn't you? Check it out. I mean, and my whole purpose, the reason is just to try, um, you know, we're, none of us are going to live forever. And and some of the stuff needs to be shared. Um, and I think nowadays, especially with um, the culture has changed to the point where there's, you don't see a lot of young people with a lot of interest in this stuff anymore. Right. So, uh, yeah. So I think I had read somewhere that there's an award given out now in your name. Is that true? Yes. Uh, so the, uh, beginning, it started this this past February. Um, it, it's called the um, Amateur. Uh, call maker of the year award it's called the dave constantine award and that has been uh, designated to the uh the new any new call maker that wins that entire division will receive that award so that that's pretty sweet in itself and i'm sure you've experienced a lot of other cool uh 
cool things along your journey but do you have anything that's been like your favorite part of this whole uh your whole turkey calling and carving um career um i do and it's the people that it's just a wonderful thing to be able to share all the facets of this you know this great sport of wild turkey hunting not only in wisconsin but across the whole nation and then on top of that, when you have other craftsmen and artists and ball makers and et cetera, I mean that you can actually have a venue which you can showcase your work. I mean, that to me is, that's the whole, that's the big picture, really is. Right. I mean, I can't imagine the the cool people you've met along the way who share the same passion you do, which is always fun when you can uh, talk with someone who feels the same about something as you do. Right. So right. I take it then, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier. You must do a fair amount of turkey hunting yourself. Yes. <laughs> Have you, so you, you've uh, hunted in Hawaii, you've hunted in Wisconsin. Have you, done any other hunts for any of the other subspecies or gone out of out of yeah. state out of country wife and i nancy we've hunted uh generally we hunt four or five states every spring of south dakota nebraska um minnesota iowa kansas and wisconsin of course i i'm not a not one of these guys that is into the grand slams and all that, but I mean, we've, we've been hunting 30 plus years in multiple States, almost every spring. Wow. Yeah. And so I'm sure you've got quite a few stories from all of those hunts as well. Gosh, yes. Lots of stories. <laughs> yes. Some of them are, are really funny. <laughs> do you yeah. do you have a favorite state outside of Wisconsin? Do. I do. Nebraska. Nebraska. I've Noah and I actually went there last year and we although we didn't kill anything, we had we had a pretty good time learning and trying to figure out a different species of birds, so Yeah, so what's your I, what's your best story from Nebraska? gosh <laughs> wow i mean well, let, let me say a couple things about nebraska i think nebraska has what don't talk in front of your hand oh i i was talking into my hand <laughs> oh it's all good okay no a couple things about nebraska is first of all i think it has the most best uh, hunting opportunities for turkeys. Number one, it's pretty much over the counter. I know they've tweaked their their numbers to two gobblers instead of three, etc. Um, and there seems to be a really good population of birds. And part of that is because of the location of the state. It doesn't have real harsh winters. It doesn't have super hot, hot, like down south. And I think it's all advantageous, advantageous to the populations of wild turkeys. 
as far as my favorite hunt in Nebraska, I guess I would have to say one that comes to mind is early morning scenario. I'm on a new piece of property that I had asked of, uh, just knocking on doors. I'd asked the day before, the afternoon before, I'd asked the farmer if I could hunt there, and he said yes. And he said, you can park up here in the feedlot and go down to the creek and get across the creek and up where I wanted to hunt. He said, that's all my land. So um, I'm going in there kind of cold, although I had seen some birds up on the top on this prairie on his farm. And so it is now pitch dark. I've parked. I've walked down to the creek. I'm looking for a place to cross. I find a deer trail where the deer are all crossing. I get into the creek in my muck boots, which are just knee highs. And I'm okay. It's not a deep creek. And I'm thinking, okay, should I go right up the bank here? Or should I go down or up the creek a little ways and then up? And I'm standing there. It's literally pitch dark and it's dead quiet. And I start hearing this plop noise something is like you would drop a pebble into the water or a stone. I literally stood there in that creek for five minutes trying to figure what, and so I finally, I look up and there is, this is no kidding, 20 plus long beards in this cottonwood tree. Straight above me roosted on these limbs and that's and what i'm hearing is their poop hitting the water oh my gosh <laughs> it, was, it was one of those things you just like yeah oh my god <laughs> <laughs> long story short i slipped up that bank and the first little opening area right there i thought well maybe someone will fly down here and i went and sat up by another big cottonwood tree and and um, these these gobblers, as it got pink light, are just tearing it up. Oh wow! And that fly down, every one of them landed right in front of me. The <laughs> <laughs> shot that was, but that one really sticks out. That was a Nebraska hunt that was pretty cool. Yeah, that sounds unbelievable. <laughs> was unbelievable. <laughs> uh, little, oh, guys, here's a little side note. Um, after I shot this bird, I went, of course, I had to go back down and cross the creek. And I saw then in the daylight, there were other great, these are giant black cottonwood trees. There had to be or six of them along this bank. So I just went up on the bank and started walking along the bank. And there was one cottonwood tree there that had, this is not BS, Four inches deep of turkey poop. Wow. The under the entire canopy of that tree. <laughs> that is insane. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So one thing that's uh, notable about western birds, when I say western birds, real grands, miriams, versus our easterns, is they're very flock-oriented. And they have, they have what I would call... Um, um, daily roost trees. They use the same ones all the time. That's why 
that's what this area was. That's what I w- had discovered there. So you'd say if you can kind of find where some of their roost trees might be, that you're going to increase your odds of success quite a bit? Western birds, big time, yes, absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So other than turkeys, do you hunt anything else like deer? Are you into fishing or small game? Uh, not much small game. Uh, we are. I have. I have two passions: wild turkeys and white-tailed deer. And mostly with the deer, mostly with bow and arrow. Uh, I mean, I'm a archery guy, and those are my two things. I used to. I used to hunt all over. I hunted elk, caribou, all kinds of bear, everything. But at some point in time. A guy just realizes what do you truly love hunting, and it's wild turkeys and white-tailed deer. So, but if you had to pick one, oh, that'd be tough. <laughs> okay, we won't make you pick one then. We won't do that. <laughs> be tough. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. And we do. We do a lot of fishing. My wife and I are. And interestingly, we're not into bass and stuff. We are. We are big blue giant bluegill hunters we look for giant bluegills that's our thing for fishing gotcha and obviously most likely eating then of course gosh yeah there's nothing better (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's what i thought so you said you're a big bow hunter especially for deer have you shot any turkeys with a bow yeah in fact um our first hunt this spring, guys, was my wife Nancy and I, and in Nebraska we killed four gobblers uh, with our bow, and that was during the bow only season there. Wow. There, if I'm not mistaken, they open uh, quite a a couple weeks earlier than Wisconsin does. March 25th is their bow opener. Okay. In Nebraska. And it's bull only. Shotgun season comes in uh, usually two weeks after that, I believe. Yeah. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, we had a really good hunt this year in Nebraska with bull. Yeah, Dave, you should have seen our faces here. We both just (laughs) looked at each other. Our jaws just dropped because we got our butts kicked so bad in Nebraska last year. And What area were you guys hunting? We were like like in the what was it the about as far west as you can go. What was the what was the oh, place called though? Pine Ridge. Pine? Mm-hmm. We were in the Pine Ridge National Forest. I want to say. Pine Ridge. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that's good turkey ground though. Um, but were you on on the res? Um, I I don't. We were just on like a huge huge public chunk, and we had gone. This was like. In what late May? Yeah, it would have been like Wisconsin's fifth season, so wrapping up at the end of May. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's getting pretty late for Nebraska. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's kind of what we were thinking. Maybe we'll have to try and head back there, and maybe just go a little bit earlier next time. Actually, Nebraska's earlier, even their bowl season is really good. Um, and it does, I will admit, as their season progresses, it seems like the later it gets, the tougher it is in Nebraska. 
Would you say yeah. it's the same type of thing here? Because we find it's usually the opposite. We have much better luck the later into the season. It's the opposite. You're correct. Yeah, here, I mean, those fifth and sixth period gobblers, I mean, they're, they'll commit suicide if you're a good <laughs> caller. Yeah, absolutely. So we, you talked a lot about decoys there. Something we've done for the past couple of years here, we've used like just an old turkey fan and kind of set that up. And especially late season, when they see that fan, they just absolutely come running. Have you ever tried any of that? That's a very effective decoy, just a tail fan, yes. Yeah, it's been unbelievable late season. Early season, we don't seem to have any luck with that necessarily. But late season, like right. you said, that's that's one of their suicide missions there. You give them a couple calls oh, and oh, yeah. they see that fan and it's well, over. you got to realize they don't have – the hens are all disappeared. Most of them are nesting or already have had their hatch, even by fifth and sixth, some of them. And, yeah, so it's uh, – one of those deals, uh, you know, I think fifth and sixth season gobblers in Wisconsin, and you guys are right, I think it's some of the best time to hunt, and a lot of people are already, they're done hunting by then. Yeah, we would agree. We That's what we look forward to the most, honestly, is those later seasons. I mean, it gets pretty pretty hot and pretty early mornings, but that's when we have the most fun. Yeah. We are, um, and you get, getting back to your question, I, as far as uh, archery, bull, um, bull turkeys, I, I I don't know how many I've shot. I'm going to, I mean, I would say maybe 20 um, out, out of 200. So that tells you there's a lot of shotgun turkeys, you know, gobblers also. Yeah, I'll say that's a whole lot of shotgun gobblers there. Right. Man. So if people are listening to this podcast and they like what they're hearing and they want to support you or they want to support, you know, just like the the turkey call carving industry in general, what would be the best way for people to do that? Okay, uh, two things. First of all, you know, the National Wild Turkey Federation is a um, nonprofit volunteer group. Um, a membership, I believe, is $35. And uh, it's a great organization, a lot of really good people. Am I a spokesperson for them? Hell no. But I'm just saying that that would be one thing. And then as far as I go... Uh, myself, you know, my Facebook page, just Dave Constantine, or my Constantine Productions page will probably take care of about any kind of information or contact-wise to get to me. Uh, websites have become kind of obsolete with all of the social media entities, so I no longer have my website, but that you'll find plenty on on my um, um, Facebook um, sources. Gotcha. So as we kind of wrap things up here, wind it down a little bit, do you have any final thoughts, any closing arguments here for us? 
closing arguments? No. <laughs> uh, I I really appreciate. I'll say that I appreciate you guys reaching out to me. I mean, I think that's really cool that you would even want to talk, want to chat with me. So I I'm flattered. Yeah, I thank you guys a uh, lot. Yeah, Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure. This is one of the coolest conversations I think I've ever had, and we could probably talk all night and into the wee hours of the morning and still not get sick of it. I mean, this has been a big honor for us, and we we just really appreciate okay. you giving us your time. So thank you. Yeah, thanks. We like oh, thank you, and you're welcome. But here's the deal: you guys need to come visit my place here. It'd be you'd love it. I have a hundred-year-old log cabin that's dedicated to the wild turkey. Um, there's a gallery here with all kinds of stuff, and, of course, the turkey calls and whatnot. I think you'd get a big kick out of it. I, I really think you guys would um, would enjoy visiting. Where, where, where are you guys located? Yeah, so we're over on, like, the other side of the state here, but uh, I actually have some family over closer by you um like the sparta area so we're we're over on that side of the state plenty we can definitely definitely make a trip no doubt about that Uh, give me a shout and really do that i think i think you'd really enjoy it oh we would absolutely love it okay (laughs) well once again thank you so much for for coming on and we would love to have you back absolutely anytime this has been an absolute blast and we've just really enjoyed talking to you here thanks likewise guys and just holler at me if there's anything i can do if you want want to talk about something else sometime give me a shout absolutely yeah so for anybody listening here um make sure you go and check out dave's facebook page um, like you said, it would be Dave Constantine or Constantine Productions. Um, you, you definitely have to go and check out the pictures of some of these projects. It's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. It's unbelievable. Um, and just you know, go show your support that way. Um, and if you'd like to subscribe to our YouTube channel, that would be Buck Fever Outdoors. And we're also available on all the social media platforms. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook, TikTok, we're, you know, we're pretty much everywhere. Um, and, and that would all be at uh, Buck Fever Outdoors. We also have a website, buckfeveroutdoors.com. That's where you can find all kinds of articles, recipes, um, all of our content you can get to from there. We have a bunch of merch. So if you guys would check all that stuff out, we would really, really appreciate it. Um, subscribe to the channel. Leave a like on this video if you're just listening on, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or something. Any five-star reviews um, really, really help us out. Those go a long ways. Um, and just thank you guys so much for listening. We really, really appreciate it. Um, thank you once again, Dave, and we'll see you guys next time. Welcome. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>